Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Holden here. And I just want to let you guys know we are going Spotify exclusive on Valentine's Day. That is the 14th of February of this year. Jake? All of our old episodes are currently on Spotify, which, let's remember, is a free app. Free, free, free. And if you want to download the episodes for later listening, all you need is a free account. Free, free, free. Listen to Wizard and the Bruiser free on Spotify and follow Wizard and the Bruiser on Spotify to get new episodes as soon as they come out. We're talking zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. It's your hammered robot bruiser, Holden McNeely. Good news, everyone. We're covering one of the most beloved science fiction comedies of all time. Oh, my. Wizard Jake, and we're here to talk about Matt Groening's uh, bedeviled, expensive, beautiful, uh, occasionally going on weird bee tangents. Remember mm-hmm. that episode where they went on a weird bee tangent? Absolutely. The so- show's so nice, they canceled it for twice. <laughs> yes, this is a show that has gone through the ringer in terms of its uh, production and different networks and things like that. This is a show that is su- such a fan-driven show. This is mm. something, the little show that could in a lot of ways. The, the Rick and Morty of 2006. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A hundred percent. The first real uh, true blue, super popular sci-fi comedy, even one would go as far as to say on television, at least. And uh, man, is this nerdy. This is maybe American television. Britain, they fucking love that shit. Yeah, Doctor Who and all that. But yeah, just fascinating. This the, the story of this development, the genius behind it, literally genius behind it, the the, the sheer combination of all of the uh, degrees that everybody had, all these scholars had going into creating this show. And what I really like about it is because of the very nature of the show, it draws upon the history of so many things that we've already talked about yeah. on this podcast. Everything from Dungeons and Dragons to eight old retro PC games to the history of The Simpsons to uh, even... We're going to hear a lot of names that you've heard before in a lot of, from a lot of weird directions. It's yes, very exciting. A hundred percent. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's very exciting. And I'm ready to get into it. We were, by the way, all this research done. We just got off of our little Midwest tour. Mm. Jake and I are so thrilled to be staring at each other in the face for another consecutive day. Wait, why do you say that sarcastically? <laughs> You're trusted confidant. <laughs> I'm completely kidding. It's, I'm actually, I will say this, a testament to our friendship. I am not, uh, I was not dreading coming in here and seeing you again, even though we've shared a room for the past five nights. 
It was weird once we got to Pontiac and I just stared you in the face and was like, I make the stinkiest dunk dunks. <laughs> and then I went ahead and proved it. <laughs> um, so uh, w- welcome everybody to part one of our Futurama. I said this before we started. This is going to be less gush and more mush. The first episode is going to be a lot more about how this show came together, uh, the creative process for the show, if talking we, about uh, the if voice we pull actors. This off, if we do this right... We'll end right at the airing of the first uh, episode. Exactly. That's exactly what we want to do. Next week, we will talk more about specific episodes that we love and ones that are so famous. Yes, we'll talk about the dog one and all that kind of stuff. Different uh, wonderful anecdotes I read about, such as the math debates that they would get into and things like that. We'll get a lot more into the actual content. This is more about the framework uh, because there's just so much to talk about. We knew... This had to be a two-parter for you guys because we know we've already received so many requests for a Futurama episode. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm glad to be finally giving it to you. I I'm trying to think about my personal experience with Futurama. Mm-hmm. I was definitely more of a Simpsons person per- personally, and by the time Futurama hit, I was not. I, I was just about to not be watching as much television. I was also not as into sci-fi back in the day. Mm-hmm. I was actually like weirdly opposed to it for a while and got more into sci-fi. I think really more when I got up to New York. Honestly, over the past like five years, like reading Dune and Philip K. Dick, and uh, this show helped me get a lot more into science fiction. I was really not into fantasy and sci-fi in general in like my high school years when I would have been watching a lot of Futurama. That said, it was Matt Groening. I was a Simpsons fanatic, so I definitely watched my fair share of Futurama. Um, but then I went to college and decided I shouldn't have a TV man because that's where how they get you, mind control you, dude. So I was like listening to like jazz on vinyl and playing chess like a real turd. So some of it slipped past me until later years when people were like, you got to see this episode. Mm. And and I definitely cried in my office job while watching the dog episode <laughs> and things like that and realizing, wow, there, this show is not just a fant- fantastic comedy sci-fi show. This show has the emotional depth that The Simpsons had uh, in many, many cases. And the character development, everything is just so great. What an, a hell of an ensemble cast. The voice acting, just the characters in general, fantastic stuff. This show came along at the perfect moment for me. I was 100% on board. Uh, I would look forward to Sunday nights on Fox, or the way they were airing it, Sunday late evenings at this point. Right. Um, because The Simpsons, uh, you know, is a family sitcom. The Simpsons is a skewing of the American kind of uh, nuclear family unit. And I was no longer, I was, I was uh, not a Bart, not yet a Homer. You know what I mean? I was in that in-between time. I was becoming a young man. And uh, Futurama came along, and there people, you know, Fry is ostensibly in his forever slacker 20s. And Bender is hard-living, and, you know, it's it kind of took it took the torch and passed it on. I remember specifically, in my, I would uh, I was in my parents' basement. I would watch it, uh, the entire animation block, unless there was a football game, and it would immediately get bumped off. And even if it was... The playoffs, I'd just be, I'd be stewing in my little nerd rage, being like, "Oh, overtime! This is bullshit! I want to, I want to see Hank Hill." <laughs> um, that's how I talked back then. Uh, that's but, how you talked up until about a few years ago, Jay. It's, <laughs> back when you were doing co- stand-up comedy, you were talking like that. Thank you to my vocal therapist, <laughs> Hank Williamson. <laughs> oh no, guys, isn't it crazy out on those streets? 
Mailman, am I right? <laughs> I was like, why does he have 20 minutes on Mailman, and why does he talk like that? Y'all ever notice when when you nut, but she keeps sucking? Ugh, God. <laughs> this guy knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> we hate it. Everybody in the... I'm speaking for everyone. We had a secret vote in the middle of this bit, and we none of us like it. So what's the deal? You two dating? <laughs> <laughs> no, we just got divorced because of your dick sucking bit. Hello. <laughs> Gazunkles. That was my catchphrase that back was, then. Yeah. I remember Gazunkles Jake for sure. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> I remember hotly anticipating this show. I was neck deep in The Simpsons. I would, you know, buy the bongo comics back in the day. And within the first five minutes of the first episode on the world premiere, you know, it was right before, uh, you know, it was 1999, right? It was a big, big 2000 millennium thing. And um, they show Fry. They show him getting, fro- you know, being in a shitty life, uh, delivering pizzas, getting dumped, uh, being kind of just a sad sack. You know, uh, out the forever, forever the words, I see wiener, oh, from Billy West is, is burned into my head. And he unfreezes. He looks out and he's like, my, my parents. My friends, my girlfriend, my coworkers are all dead. Woohoo! Like, <laughs> and I was like shocked that you could make it was, it was such a dark joke that I yeah. wasn't quite used to. Yeah, that Futurama definitely had a lot more dark humor, even from the offset. That and and we will get into that because they definitely got a lot of pushback from the execs. Oh yeah, over over these choices. But yeah, it definitely it wasn't just sci-fi Simpsons. <laughs> I love this quote from Matt Groening too. I always say that Futurama is real. The Simpsons is fiction. <laughs> and I, I do get that in a lot of ways. First of all, this, a lot of the science and math and things happening underneath the surface of Futurama were all based in reality. A lot of that stuff. I mean, obviously, it's very fictional. But, um, but they would yeah, get a I, lot of drama where uh, maybe a show like Doctor Who or Star Trek would kind of just hand wave whatever science problem was in the way of the plot resolving. Yes. Futurama would take a second and be like, no, it's physically impossible to fix what we just did and have to like really deal with the consequences and they'd have to think their way out of a lot of things or at least take more consideration into how to fix those problems. Right. Hell, Hubert Farnsworth literally just, there was a character they introduced that would just like point out why everything was bullshit and wouldn't work in real life. But more importantly, I feel like more so than specifically adhering to the math and science stuff, which they did and we'll get into, it had a very specific point of view, which is that weird kind of like chummy nihilism of like a smart person. Right. <laughs> like that kind of like, I've done the homework, the universe is empty, everything's <laughs> fucked, the sun will kill us all. But you know, tacos are great. Like, you know, <laughs> that, that, you know, not like the, not the edgelord, like sulky kind of, just that kind of weird, gleefully nihilistic, <laughs> just that gleeful, <laughs> academic, just kind of like, well, you know, we're just flesh machines filling out our own code, but uh, you know, I love my grandma, so everything's fine. Like, and that really resonated with me. Yes. It was the specific worldview that really, uh, I just, I just, it just clicked with me. And then on top of that, it's funny. Yeah, it's well done. The voice acting's amazing. The animation is, is incredible. Amazing. You know, we'll get. I hopefully we'll get into of how course. Rough Draft uh, kind of revolutionized Absolutely. a bunch of different animation techniques to get this thing yeah. done. Oh, that's this is the episode for that. Absolutely, this is. We will talk about all of that. The and this voice acting and everything, the opening sequence, all of those things we will be getting into the nitty gritty of. And yeah, sure, I do want to splash a bunch of cummy love, cummy cum all over the <laughs> faces of of uh, the lovers of this show. But that's you're gonna have to wait till next week for that. Um, uh, so, anyways, uh, let's get into it. 
let's talk about, first of all, let's set the stage. It is around the mid-90s. And the Fox executives, they want a new series for Mac rating. I mean, The Simpsons, hugely successful. We t- Go check out our beginning of The Simpsons episode. I definitely want to do more Simpsons coverage in the future. We're, but at this point... We're talking Butterfinger commercials, bootleg t-shirts about the first Iraq war. Yeah. All and, the hallmarks of a successful franchise. And Bart Simpson, weirdly, is Michael Jordan somehow. <laughs> and uh, I remember... Uh, I think I did talk about this the other day, but I have a memory of going to Myrtle Beach, and my brother was, was dead set on finding a very specific uh, Bart Simpson is Michael Jordan t-shirt, and he couldn't <laughs> find it anywhere. And I remember just going from to every surf shop in the fucking beach. Please, sir, do you have an air bot? <laughs> I, I do so want an air bot. <laughs> So uh, we got an Elbardo, <laughs> we got a uh, Black Bart, we got. <laughs> so yes, yeah, Simpsons all over the place. You you can't deny it. So of course the executives want more from Matt Groening. Uh and um, the, in walks David X Cohen. Well, he's been around for a while. He mm-hmm. but he is the one Matt Groening pulled in to develop the show. And here's why: David X Cohen, born in New York City, he was raised in New Jersey. He uh, both of his parents were biologists, big important factor, and he had planned to be a scientist while enjoying writing and drawing cartoons as a hobby. Then he ended up writing uh, for the humor column in his high school paper while being a part of the school's state champion mathematics team. It is like textbook. This is the guy that would oh, create that would co-create future full on nerd, yeah. full on like weekends playing Dungeons and Dragons, nerd, but comedy comic nerd. Books. Uh, math he did. Nerd. He programmed his own uh, adventure game for the PC. Of called- course, he did. Zoid, <laughs> which then obviously became Zoidberg in the yes. later. Yeah, uh, he sent it to Broderbund and they rejected it. So you know, poor him. His, this was his uh, rebellious thing. His parents were biologists. He decided to get into computer sciences. Ah, yes. Yeah, bad boy of the family. That's oh man, what a rebel. He he ends up uh, going on to graduate from Harvard University with a BA in physics. Wrote for the Lampoon, obviously, because otherwise, how Lampoon. would he? He was president of the Harvard Lampoon. That's even better. This, of course, was an underground publication founded in 1876, and it is the l- second longest-running, continuously published humor magazine at this point. He, After uh, Belgium's Der Fuppenfappers. <laughs> he went on to the University of California, Berkeley, with an MS in computer science, like you just said. And uh, so after three years of grad school, Cohen decides to take a leave of absence to, uh, to write sample TV scripts and ends up getting a job in 1992 writing for... Beavis, Beavis and Butthead, Butthead, which rules. I'm According to for- him, uh, mm-hmm. the reason why he got it is, uh, uh, this is the quote, uh, through a long and tedious series of random events, what I had written ended up in the hands of Mike Judge, creator of Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill. He was looking for cheap writers, and I was cheap and arguably a writer. So he let me write a couple of the early episodes of Beavis and Butthead. And suddenly I had a resume that included a hit show on MTV. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to right out of the gate get a writing job on, like, such a cool fucking show. I mean, if we're talking about, like, I mean, philosophically how different an animated show's tone could be. Yes. Beavis and Butthead... I'm I'm sorry. It's it's divinely stupid, but it yes. is a very stupid show. I love yeah, but it's like so wonderfully dumb. It's oh yeah, just, you know, no, you, like you couldn't make it like a dumb per it's so dumb that a dumb person couldn't have made it. He wrote that like frisbee episode where they got the plate <laughs> from their neighbor and like that it was indestructible and they were like fucking with it, like different stuff like that. Um he he wrote some pretty good ones early on. It was only a few episodes he did. 
This then, though, led to a job on The Simpsons in 1993, during which he wrote or co-wrote 13 episodes. These include Homer Goes to College, Bart Gets Famous, and Marge on the Lamb. Homer Goes to College is so good. It's such, that is one of the best. I will say, I, I didn't pull this quote, but he talks about, and this is very true. He's like, yeah, I get the written by credit, but like every yeah. episode of a TV show is written by a team of people. You just, you have to slap a name or two on the written by, but it really is such a collaborative episode. Oh, especially effort. an animated show where everything from the animatic stage to the final pen and ink stage is subject to so many punch-ups and re- yeah. rewrites that it's, yeah, you don't. The idea that he is the only one who wrote the crusty old Dean. Yeah, but I will say that is... Such a clever concept that Homer is just like trying to be Animal House in the mid 90s. And it's like these genuine just nerds who are just, you know, into nerd stuff and are going to college and having a good time. And he's just like ruining it for everybody. It's so funny to me. Um, Bart gets famous, of course, too, where, where he goes on Conan and he's like, just say the line. I didn't do it. Right. Isn't that the Yeah, yeah. I didn't do it. Um, which, of course, played on the Cowabunga fame of Bart Simpson early on. I mean, just really inventive stuff. Uh, so he's a staff writer up through 1998 until he began developing Futurama with Graining. And this is what uh, David X. Cohen had to say. By the way, the X is only there because of, uh, like, um, G- Writer's Guild. His middle name is S, and they already had a David S. Cohen exactly. as well. Exactly, so that's why he's got the X, which is a great idea because, like, X, like, he could have chosen any letter. X is, like, the, the most like crazy choice he could have made. I, this is a side tangent, just a quick thing. Please, um, take your time. If you are <laughs> a very talented but otherwise unexceptional uh, creator, give yourself a weird name. Yes. Just do it because it creates this weird feedback loop where because you have a weird name, it makes everyone immediately notice you. Mm. Then they click to make sure that like you're not some asshole. Mm. And this is key to the entire formula. You have to actually be good at the thing you're trying to do. But then once you're good at the thing they're trying you're trying to do, the person will be like, "Oh, all right. Okay. Okay, I give you permission to have a dumb name." Right. And by and you're already in their head right. way stronger, way more immediately than if you had just been like Frank Gerbils. Right, exactly. Well, Gerbils, I don't know if you want to go with. Oh, uh, Frank Gerbils. <laughs> No, that's what I'm saying. So you make it Frank Gerbils. <laughs> uh, this is what David X. Cohen had <laughs> to say. Another classic derail. <laughs> Cohen said, I was a writer at The Simpsons for five years, and four years into that, rumors started going around that Matt Groening was working on this secret science fiction project. I was very interested, of course, being the SF science nerd on The Simpsons writing staff. Matt came to me and asked if I wanted to collaborate with him, and we started talking in our spare time because we were both still working on The Simpsons on weekends and evenings about what we might do in Futurama. A lot of it was just, what books do we like? What movies do we like? This went on for a year, which was too much time in retrospect. When we finally went into Fox Network to sell the show, we had too much stuff, and the meeting went on for about two hours. Uh, I think they finally said, all right, that's enough. We'll take the show if you just shut up. It ended up being a learning experience. Also, that is... I love that description of the Fox execs. That's such a Simpsons executive <laughs> sounding thing. Just, just no, fine. We'll take it if you just shut up. Uh, so when Cohen joined, Graining already had the characters Fry, Leela, Zap Brannigan, and Kiff worked out. And together they added Bender, Zoidberg, and Nibbler. Cohen speaks about how much they had to learn when it came to over-explaining concepts and the world of the show to the audience. 
He said, we rapidly stopped explaining things to Fry, even though he was our <laughs> man in the future from our time. We started thinking of him as another character who was just a dumb guy rather than someone who knew nothing about the future. And that's a big one. They said one of their hugest things was like, uh, not respecting the audience enough early on in terms of explaining concepts and things like that. And and they even had another robot character, I believe they talked about, or something like that. that little pal or something. Little pal or something. Pocket buddy. That something they like were that. they dropped because that was that was all wrapped into over explaining things. And they just were like, We don't we don't actually need to do this. Um and that that is really fascinating. But they definitely had to over explain things to the Fox executives. Before we get there though, let's talk about some of the influences. Graining has talked about this in the past. I loved literary science fiction. In fact, as a kid, when I was reading science fiction, I thought, I can't wait for the future when the special effects are good to represent what was in these books by Arthur C. Clarke, Alfred Bester, Philip K. Dick, we did an episode on, check it out, J.G. Ballard, Jack Vance. And I love that he was, as a kid, like, oh, I can't wait till I can go see these concepts done. And then he ends up being the purveyor of these concepts in a lot of ways through animation. And the fact that, like, once effects did get, like, done well enough, we ended up, like, not really with, like, larger-than-life grand sci-fi narratives. We ended up with, like, Will Smith's iRobots yeah. and, like, the Star Trek reboots yeah. and, like, everything. You know, the grand dream that, like, high-minded galaxy brain sci-fi is harder to find. You know, you can get, like, like the Expanse is, like, kind of neat. We've got Dune coming this year, which is really exciting, and yeah. hopefully they'll actually nail it like I don't know that they have in the past. They oh, man, we got to do a Dune episode this year, Jake. I mean, they have to nail it because then it has to become a franchise, and then we'll finally get the weird-ass God Emperor Doom shit. Right. Where, like, there's just a giant worm that runs everything. Right, right. Who just goes on, like, multi-page diatribes. Cohen said, when I was a kid, I used to find books lying around my house because my mom was a voracious science fiction reader. I believe that. Uh, that's where I got my love of science fiction. I found Stanislaw Lim books like the, the Star Diaries and Tales of Perks the Pilot, and I think Mortal Engines, really strange, surreal, and funny SF short stories that had a big influence on me, especially as far as the idea that robots could be characters, and he attributes the character of Bender to Lim. Um, especially one story that Lim wrote about a planet entirely inhabited by human-killing robots that humans crash land on, so they have to pretend to be robots in order to survive. Spo That's literally an episode. That is literally an episode. Um, and spoiler alert, all the robots turn out to be humans that crash landed as well, who are all just pretending to be ki uh, human-killing robots. And one yes, of the they things, totally did an episode minus that twist. They did an episode very much like that. One of the things, uh, one of the quotes that I read that like really clicked into place on where Matt Groening and where Futurama kind of fit into this great sci-fi oeuvre is that, you know, <laughs> Matt Groening was this uh, alternative cartoonist. We talked about his story a lot in our uh, making of the Simpsons or the origins of the Simpsons episode. Uh -huh. You know, he was, it's always like the weird, like kind of slacker who overeducated, who just kind of leans in the back and is like, you know, the society's kind of bullshit, right? <laughs> And Futurama, I feel like, would be the kind would be the Simpsons in a Star Trek universe. Yes. Where like instead of um idyllic and utopian, they're like, you know, Zap Brannigan, they're dupe, they're making fun of the Federation. They're making fun of the Jedi Order. That the idea that even in these perfect futures, 
there's still going to be people grumbling and making fun of the hypocrisies. Uh, the quote, I think, uh, oh yeah, the quote is, uh, this is from an interview with Graining. You know, I love Star Wars and I loved Star Trek and all the variations on him, says Graining. However, I wanted to do a TV show where the problems of the universe are not solved just by militarism with new age spirituality. <laughs> Which is Jedi and the Federation. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh no, no, no. The government controls everything, but we're kind of hippies about yeah. it. <laughs> so true i thought let's try something different you know it's not a knock on the optimism of those shows i just think uh i'm gonna have a more subversive take also though david x Cohen, superly super super influenced by star trek and i think that's influence is very obvious in futurama with the dynamic space team all working together on these different missions and things like that and what's hilarious is one of the big pushbacks from fox was they were like, they keep traveling to these other planets. Like, we want to see what future Earth is like. Like, spend more time there. But it's like, look at Star Trek. I mean, the whole bread and butter was that, mm -hmm. exactly that. And people loved it for that. Oh, element. I have a really good quote from, I, oh, I, yeah. I'm, you know what? You I'm, got a juicer for I us? I got a real That's juicy <laughs> one. Um, are you going to do a whole segment on how the yeah, I literally execs... ha In my notes, I literally have in bold, fighting with Fox. Okay, We're about I'll throw to get it in there. later. Ooh, but it's We're, a juicy. Yes, I'm so excited, mm, guys. Get prepared. Like a fresh Roma tomato. You guys better get a dry rag so you can wipe <laughs> yourself down after this juice juice quote we got coming from Jake. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, let's talk a little bit about the world building that they did. Cohen said, we did decide pretty quickly that we weren't going to do the real goofy version where there are spaceships that look like flying bicycles. We thought those kind of visual jokes would wear thin. And you had to see a dumb looking ship a thousand times. It wouldn't be funny. The 832nd. However, they also didn't think folks would watch it if it was taken in a more serious SF quote unquote direction. <laughs> Yet after the first season of the show, Fans did respond highly to the episodes with more of a sci-fi, with, with harder sci-fi elements in them, which made them actually eventually push further in that direction going forward. Cohen said, that's what we didn't know that we could do at first, a real science fiction story, but also a comedy or touching story. The reason it worked is that having this grand melodramatic background for the SF story sets up this bubble of tension that you can pop with the jokes, and the jokes actually end up playing better. I even saw a quote from Graining saying things along the lines of like, we were just rushing in a lot of ways to like get our comedy sci-fi animated show out there mm -hmm. because we, we were certain that someone else was going to do it before us. But then as soon as they started working on the show, they realized just how difficult it is mm -hmm. to pull off a comedy sci-fi show. It's not, it's, there's a lot of challenges in that because you're dealing with, especially because a lot of science fiction is concept based and not character based. And again, I'm, um, I'm essentially uh, uh, abridging a quote that he gave that I didn't put down in verbatim. But, but yeah, that, it, that it's so much more about concept and so much less about character in most sci-fi tales of yore. Uh, and so, but they needed to build those, you know, I mean, their bread and butter in The Simpsons is the, are those characters, mm -hmm. are those, those things you can hang your hat on. And to do both at the same time presents a lot of challenges. Well, the reason why Bender obviously was the breakout character is because he was the strongest and had his game down yeah. right out the gate. Yeah, just uh, immediately. And, and, and Dr. And his, Zoidberg and yeah. uh, all, you know, all the fry memes uh, are all after they cemented his status as just the dumbest person. Yeah. Like, shut up and take my money is not episode one fry. Yes, totally. Episode one fry is uh, just kind of complaining. Yeah, I mean, he's more of a just a straight character that was put in this situation, not really as stupid. It's so funny, too, because that's like the evolution of Homer as well. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> completely. So the writing staff, I love this fact. The writing staff held 
three PhDs, seven master's degrees, and attended more than 50 years at Harvard all put together. That's <laughs> the, uh, the most overeducated writer's room in all of television. That's exactly what staff writer Patrick M. Verone said. <laughs> we were easily the most overeducated cartoon writers in history. Um, so let's get into now. They've they've created the world. They pulled some people together, and now they are. And now at you know Fox greenlit the show way back when. And as soon as they start presenting what this show was actually going to be. They are starting to immediately get pushed back because, hey, they were the reason for The Simpsons, right? So they know how to make a successful show, right? Hold on. I'm going to need you to hold off on the clutch for a second, get into the get into the shoulder because I'm going to have another crazy diversion. Oh, my God. Help us all. Uh-oh. Oh, God. His dick's out. Oh, Is- my God. <laughs> <laughs> is there a cow on the tracks? Because we're getting derailed. Why is your penis out of your pants? Jake, this is just a normal podcast recording. It's I'm just airing it out, man. It's it flaccid. It's not even hard. This is just for my own comfort. I'm not trying to shock you. I was hoping you wouldn't make a big deal out of it. It's inconsequential to what I'm going to talk about. So we've talked about this studio before, specifically in our The Mask episode. This Hell is yeah. Rough Draft Studios. And the thing about Rough Draft- Wait, The Mask episode? The Max. Oh, okay. I was like, we did an episode on The Mask and I don't even remember Technically, it. we did it both in the same episode. <laughs> we killed two birds with one stone. Um, and those birds are still dead in the studio and it reeks in here. Uh, now, it's there's a weird kind of uh, differentiation because Rough Draft Korea was a company uh, founded by the same people that helped uh, you know, The Simpsons and a lot of other animation uh, in the 90s outsource to- uh, Korea with and their whole deal was like we're gonna give you quality animation at Korea prices, but like it'll be just as easy as working on with a domestic animation studio. And Rough Draft proper really hadn't worked on that many shows on their own. So literally, this is the same team from the Max, and they were desperate for a new show. Um, it's uh, Claudia Katz and Greg Vonzo, who we talked about before. They were begging Groening to get the deal to animate Futurama. They were desperate they were like you know our our la studio like needs work we do such a good job on the simpsons in korea like you know us you've worked with us claudia katz got her big break literally animating the bart simpson butterfinger commercials so like she knew everybody uh this is from an interview on the very aging web 1.0 blog can't get enough futurama uh claudia katz says um uh, Futurama was Rough Draft's second primetime series, and we fought very hard to get it. We'd been talking to Matt about the series, but as it got closer to being a reality, there was a lot of pressure on Matt to choose a more established studio. In the interest of not going down without a fight, I decided to do a short demo reel so Matt and David Cohen could at least see our vision for the series. Oh, they went rogue and just proved they could do it rather than <laughs> hope that some guy in a suit maybe takes a chance on them. Right. Weird. Is that what happened in every single thing we've ever covered? Exactly. Uh, Rich Moore came up with a 30-second pitch that we animated quickly in-house, and as luck would have it, we screened it for Matt about 15 minutes before the show was supposed to be awarded to another studio. Thankfully, the phone call was never made, and Matt threw down for us. Uh, the rest is history. Once we got the show, having something to prove served us well. Uh, yeah, Graining said... It- it was like one of the where is the exact quote he said it was one by far the worst experience of my grown-up life getting that show on the air he also said wait 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 wait. just uh, so more on rough draft yeah yeah uh so one of the things they had to do that was revolutionary was actually balance the 3d and the 2d animation Uh this was not like literally the only other example of this happening before was their work on the max and this time around if you watch the the max like it's it's very clear that they're just throwing some CG in between an animated show. 
This time, they were solving all sorts of creative problems to get the 3D backgrounds and the 3D animation to click with the 2D animation. Stuff like, um, you know, getting the poses to hit right, getting the backgrounds to not stick out, getting the lighting right. You know, they had they were the ones who had to solve the problem of how do you get a lighting algorithm that makes it look like cell shaded uh, 2D that doesn't look like a PS2 game. Mm -hmm. These are all things that they worked their asses off on and they drastically improved the studio. Uh, the pen and ink animation would get sent to Korea. But then uh, what really set it apart is rather than getting the final copy from Korea, rather than, you know, having the final animatic having the voice lines, and then sending it overseas and hoping it comes back okay, and if it doesn't, it's a giant process, they could recomposite and re-edit the episodes in L.A. as they needed it to. So it actually gave them way more control and helped, even though these episodes were crazy expensive, I think something like $2.5 or something, per $1.5 million per episode, this weird collaboration between uh, 2D animators, 3D artists, and uh, the editors all working together, made this show a one-of-a-kind product. Cohen said, The animators usually have a script for about six months. They get a month or two in the U.S. working on the storyboards, which become an animatic halfway along the way. It's sort of a pencil version of the show. Maybe one drawing per second. Much jerkier than the normal animation you'd see, but it gives us a general sense of how they're planning to stage everything. Then this is So this is a storyboard with around 100 drawings, which leads to a pencil-drawn animatic with 1,000 frames. They then give feedback to the animators as to how the jokes are hitting and do some rewrites alongside that, which they do again once the color animation comes back from South Korea. Cohen said, any big changes we ha uh, make have to be done fairly quickly, and it's fairly expensive at that point. But thanks to the miracle of modern digital editing, we can change lines by cutting out the character's mouth and reordering the mouth position. The finished episode, get this, is around 30,000 frames and is rendered at 24 frames per second. It is uh, the fast and uh, complex shots, like the spaceship movement, mm -hmm. explosions, stuff like that, involve um, the, the majority of the C CGI. The entire opening sequence is also CGI. We'll imagine, get more into the opening sequence later. Imagine you're working in the animation department for this show. You know, the checks have been signed. You only have so much time and money to work with. And then you get a script that'll say something like, uh, thousands of robots are on the planet's surface, dancing and partying like there's no tomorrow. Or every character in the history of Futurama looks on and gasps. Or uh, in one of the, uh, in the Bender God one, mm -hmm. there's actually a direction, a line in the script that just says, uh, the Emmy-winning animation extravaganza continues as stars and galaxies begin to form. Did you, and, and forgive me if you already mentioned this, did you mention that this all came about during the Ren and Stimpy show? Oh, no. We talked about the origins of Rough Draft in, in the, the Ren and Stimpy yeah. show and in the Max. Just mention it really quick. Founded by Nikki Vanzo, it, it was actually during the Ren and Stimpy show where she um, approached John. It's been forever since I Chris said this Felucci. name. Yeah, thank you. While working on, uh, on that and uh, talked to him about outsourcing to Korea. And that's really what started the whole thing. So imagine, so think to yourself if we lived in a world where. John Kay of Ren and Stimpy was just um, easier to work with and was more capable of managing animators. We might not have had a Futurama. There you go. It's so true. Uh, so going back to dealing with the Fox execs, Graining said it was a battle because they thought it was going to be bland and peppy like the Jetsons, the Simpsons in the future. That's what oh, they God. thought they were going to get. But That's I a great quote where like uh, Matt Graining is explaining like, 
we re- uh, this was actually in the um, audio commentary on the pilot, mm. which Holden, I'll send you the Please. illegal download with all the commentary <laughs> tracks. The idea was they really wanted to focus on the idea that the future is not just wet and decrepit like Blade Runner, but it's also not like sleek and bland like the Jetsons. And the execs were like, what's wrong with the Jetsons? We love the Jetsons. Everybody <laughs> loved the Jetsons. The Jetsons made a lot of money. <laughs> and the sick. 60s. Uh, yeah, Graining, Graining didn't want to, as he put it, uh, be accused of ripping myself off. We wanted to do a workplace comedy and uh, in, in reference to like not making a Simpsons in space. The Simpsons was about children and married parents, Graining said. Futurama is about people in between. They're growing up and haven't settled down. Every other cartoon show seemed to be, you know, dumb dad, bratty kids, especially by that point because of The Simpsons. But also think about who this show is for. The show is going to largely be for like sci-fi nerds that are probably in a certain stage in their life, not parents necessarily yet, maybe not, uh, you know. I'm not um, a part. Yeah. Not yet a home. Exactly. They're sort of they're 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 geeks in college and stuff like that. I mean, of course this show is for a, a vast audience. But I think honing in on that type of personality type that person in that stage of their lives was very smart on their part. Uh I'm going to juicy quote Give me that juice quote, Chate, and everybody, seriously, get your towels ready because I, I don't know what's going to happen after this. There uh, might be a geyser, essentially, of juice quote all over you. David after. X. Cohen said this in an interview. Uh, when presenting the pilot, the first pilot to Fox executives, they were apprehensive. Uh, one angry uh, executive said, I thought this was going to be like The Simpsons, to which Matt Groening replied, it is like The Simpsons. It's new, original, and good. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. I have that quote too, JK. We are quote brothers. Um, so yeah, they they you the know the bond is made. <laughs> and this is so difficult because the executives are like Jetsons, and the writers are like in the room debating very abstract mathematical concepts for hours at a time. Uh, the the brain switching episode was the big one. Grading said in one episode, characters switch brains, but quote had to switch to another character before they could get back to their own brain. And Ken Keeler, one of the original writers on The Simpsons, wrote a complicated theorem to show the minimum amount of moves it would take to get back your own brain. You know, like in the Jetsons, like when the maid did that with uh, <laughs> the daughter. It's one of the more complicated, uh, and I think that's like even a later episode where they go full theorem, but like everything from the background jokes to very incidental stuff, Stuff like uh, in I in I roommate uh, Bender's like apartment number is the binary uh, for the Unicode symbol for the dollar sign because he's greedy. Uh, stuff where they enter the computer world, they make sure that all of the circuitry and that the circuit designs that they travel in are engineeringly sound or electronically sound. Uh, they just would not let anything pass without a little bit of thought. The fact that uh, in future New York. Owls are the official like uh, vermin because they were brought in to kill the rats and now became an invasive species. Every little thing has its own, uh, you know, they didn't half-ass anything. And I think a part of that like really great care is because uh, it was in development for so long. Like, you know, if you're if you have the clout of a Matt Groening and you have the brain of a David X. Cohen, you can like put all of your weird little ideas and your layers upon layers upon layers Everything from the fake alien language to the idea that, like, the big plot, I, spoiler alert, the big, like, uh, plot about Nibbler and the Nibblonians uh-huh. is, like, there in the pilot. Everything from uh, Leela's, like, parentage to, like, you know, it all kind of stacks up because for years you're just, like, 
kicking back with your friend talking about all the cool shit you want in a show and you have the budget and clout to actually put it in there. Right, but because, of course, they're getting all this kickback from the execs, they're immediately getting what execs <laughs> give when they are concerned. They are getting noted to death. Bender's too mean uh, is an, one example. You're going to a different planet every week. We want to know what Earth is like was another one I brought up earlier. It was a nightmare. Uh, they had initially ordered 13 episodes, but fearing the themes would be too much for the network, Fox execs tried to take over some creative control of the project. And, uh, yeah, the actually, you, you can see this as evidence. The episode I roommate was specifically made to appease the network execs. And it is about Bender and Fry looking for an apartment together on Earth. And it was attempting to essentially respond to the notes that they gave. And, of course, they saw it and said, we hate this. We hate this, too. They 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 didn't know what the show was going to be, what the show needed to be. And, of course— the- And I really have to stress, very expensive to make this yes, show. Yes, yes. So it was just awful, graining. I think you, you already covered this, really, with that anecdote earlier, but graining— Finally was able to get full creative control like he had with The Simpsons, but it took one hell of a, th- uh, of a fight that it was just a nightmare. Um, uh, in addition to the animation, they were spending money. Uh, uh, did you get into Christopher Ting at all? I'll, I'll bl- briefly blast Maybe. them. Maybe. The composer. Yes, I have the smallest amount on Christopher Well, Tink. just, uh, again. Uh, He's done music for Suits and Rescue Me. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> That's what I have. Christopher Ting was the composer, and he was allowed to get a full orchestral score. Uh huh. That's crazy expensive for an animated cartoon. And it's played on the tubular bells, right? Oh, okay. So the theme song is specifically uh, because so much of like the Futurama thing is like kind of a past futurist uh, kind of deal. The opening theme is very similar and heavily inspired by French composer Pierre Henry's Psyche Rock, uh, which is. Uh, very much of that era, kind of. Um, I, I don't know how else to describe it besides that. Mary, uh, you can find, Mary, please play a very Futurama y chunk of the uh, Pierre Henry composition, Psyche Rock. Ding dong, <laughs> ding ding dong dong. Yeah, okay, it's, we clearly got that. Um, <laughs> Now, uh, Christopher Ting, the composer, very quickly, I just need to get one uh, crossover in. Uh, He was just a drummer and a musician, uh, also from New Jersey. And he, uh, on a whim, on just like literally his girlfriend, uh, submitted him to this like composer's fellowship in L.A. And just to shut her up, he was like, "Okay, I guess I'll do this. He actually got it, uh, began to apprentice under a bunch of uh, movie and TV composers, including, this was his big daddy, Basil Polidorus, the composer of RoboCop. Oh, awesome. And in, with him, he got to see, like, the kind of power that a composer, that, like, even just a, a soundtrack composer can have, like, uh, you know, organizing a 90-person orchestra. That's rad. Uh, so before we get into the writing process, because I didn't know where else to shoehorn this factoid, uh, is the title Futurama came from the name of a pavilion at the 1939 New York World's Fair, which showed how the designer imagined the world would look like in 1959. 
So that's that's a fun little factoid for you. What if instead of going to the airport, you went to yes. the hoverport yeah, yes, in the exactly. world of tomorrow? There's a lot of that kind of corny, like, uh, yeah, floating bicycles. What probably. if traffic was controlled via radio waves? <laughs> you mean like Google Maps and GPS like it actually is now? Oh, shit, we called that one. What if information gets traveled along digitally <laughs> through monitors? Connected to high-class processors. What if everyone carried a computer around with them everywhere they went that allowed them to communicate with each other and look up information, and miraculously, it was only the size of a large dog? In 1959, women, too, will have mustaches. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure about that last one, Steve? Yes, absolutely. Now come play with this mercury with me. I've been getting new ideas from it. Um, okay, one of my favorite things to do personally, because I am a nerd in this way, is to research and find out all about the writing process of all these mm. different shows. And they are quite similar, but I love the breakdown of this, and the, and Cohen goes into great detail on this. There's a really great article we pulled a lot of this stuff from called, what, It Takes 10 Years to Make an Episode <laughs> of Futurama or something like that. It's, it's, really, it's a really great article uh, where Cohen breaks all this stuff down. So first, there is a table meeting with all the writers of that season to discuss plot ideas. Cohen said, it all starts with a general discussion. What are some stories we haven't done before? Which he said is very difficult now because, uh, or it got, was, got very difficult near the end because it's like, there's just, they, they did so many episodes. So with a plot idea, a writer gets assigned to write an outline, which Cohen usually works with them on, going back and forth until they have it locked enough for that writer to do a rough draft of the script. Then Cohen said, then the real work begins. All the writing staff sits around a table and we grind through the first draft on a word-by-word, scene-by-scene basis, make it shorter and funnier and more dramatic and make more sense out of it. Everything on the table. But if we decide at that point to throw out a whole storyline, it's a lot of work. The more we can nail things down at the outline stage, the better off we are. You don't want to pitch 100 jokes on a part of the story you're going to cut. After that, the voice actors come in and do a table read. This is my favorite part about learning about this because they also even went right. I, I believe I'm right on this. Even when they record the actual episode the, for the final product, it's like a radio show, right? Mm-hmm. They're all in the same room together, and that's one of the special things about Futurama. It's in that it's in that class of shows, voice actor wise, where they're all there together, playing off of each other, and that's so important. But before even they get to that point, they come in and do a table reads. The writers can hear their work in order to make further changes. Then they record it like a radio show and give it to the animators. And then they that comes back. And then I, they, I believe they probably – is that the final recording for them? I guess, yeah. And then they send it to the animators. Then they probably have to uh, do uh, dubs and post. One of the earliest things is you get the uh, audio because even, only after that point can you get the timing and the animatic like down because – uh, without that timing, without like knowing how the actual second to second pacing of the episode goes, you can't animate it. Right. So let's get into it. Let's talk about these voice actors. This okay. is just this prestige. I know we've talked about Billy West in the past, but I'm going to pretend like we haven't. The man who was Bugs Bunny in Space Jam. Fry, Professor Farnsworth, Dr. Zoidberg, and Zap Brannigan, among many other side characters, are all voiced by Billy West, who was born in Detroit and wound up working for The Big Mattress Show, which was Boston's uh, WBC and radio uh, morning show, and was one of the first big drive-time morning shows that introduced staple segments such as prank phone calls and other comedy bits in the early 80s. One of the very first one of those, and he was doing phone call impressions and stuff like that. 
He then made what he thought was going to be a one-time appearance on the Howard Stern Show, which was on K-Rock in New York City back back when he did that, which turned into a part-time gig doing voices including Ru- Rudy Giuliani, Leona Helmsley, and Cincinnati Reds owner Marge Schott. He just did would come in, do all these different voices. If you listen to, especially back in the day, Howard Stern, there were a lot of impressionists coming on mm-hmm. and doing really filthy bits as the the celebrity characters they were really good at voicing then he gets his another big break after past radio getting cast as stimpy and ren and stimpy and this launches the prolific voice acting career that he has for cartoons today so ren and stimpy again huge part in <laughs> creating the futurama we know I'd say Fry is more of a Doug-based performance. <laughs> that too. Yes. Also, I, I should mention he also got Doug around the same time on, on that Nickelodeon well, block. And all of this is really based on the fact that um, Nickelodeon was ostensibly a New York-based company still, even as a lot of the Nicktoons production was being done in New York. So uh, Billy West describes literally just running across the street from the Howard Stern Studios uh-huh. to audition for uh, roles like Stimpy and Doug. And he said that he auditioned for just about every part. For Futurama, and those are the ones that he got. Uh, and, and now let's talk about. I'm so glad we get to talk about Katie Seagal on this show because I love her work. She's so great. She, of course, voices Leela, uh, the the one eyed. Oh uh, Can I say something? Love uh, interest of Fry. Oh no! Look, the train is cling 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 thousands dead. Another derail. Uh, in so many <laughs> interviews dead. and so it's <laughs> so much Jesus. supplemental material. Matt Greenick cannot stop talking about how sexy he thinks Leela is. Uh, and yes. the whole time he was yes. like, "My idea was we need a real hot babe, you know, one of those space titties." Well, like, he also he was like, "I didn't think that they could make Simpsons characters look sexy, but they figured the animators they, figured they it didn't. out. They didn't, Matt. That's weird. Yeah, You're that's weird, weird Matt." Creeping me out, Matt. She has one eyeball, dude. <laughs> but he, did, he, the idea was he was like subverting the alien, like uh, Captain Kirk love interest. And really, I think it was Katie Seagal's uh, performance that informed the character more than the original uh, yeah. creator's intention. And she wasn't some just some sex pot. She was this really strong, awesome female character. And strong in a way that, like, when in Matt Groening's mind, like, yeah, of course she's strong. She does a karate and, like, <laughs> every older girl I had a crush on, she wears Doc Martens. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, like, actual, like, inner, like, uh, strength and emotional maturity. For sure. So, Katie Seagal. Not that being attracted to karate girls and Doc Martens is bad. Yeah, that's actually quite good. It's very good. Uh, I applaud you. <laughs> Stand proudly, people. Please, <laughs> yes. Let's start an online campaign for <laughs> people who are super horned out by karate ladies and doc martens um what man i think that was the most rail derailed you've gotten no no, no wait actually the uh oh please my entire career is filled with beautiful violent derail and now i want to talk about my favorite hamburger <laughs> oh such a powerful derailment holden you have gone beyond the master <laughs> we should just do an episode on derails where we just derail the derail the the discussion on derailing no we have to make it about something like uh and now it's fine it's our tim burton retrospective and it's just about hamburgers and, <laughs> and like, like fun our pants. favorite amusement park rides <laughs> uh, yeah exactly so katie seagal grew up in la in a showbiz family her father died in 1981 due to an accident on a miniseries called world war three he was a director i don't know that was just a crazy fact i saw her mother was a singer, and three of her four siblings are also actors. She started out actually more in music, and had she's like, I'm sure she had struggles, 
But I'm reading her bio and I'm just like, what a successful ass person. Like, what in the fuck? She started out as a backing backing vocalist for singers like Bob Dylan, Etta James, and Tanya Tucker. That that is no slouch. She also released her own solo albums in the early 90s, Well, dot dot dot, and an album called Room. She initially got into acting with a receptionist role on an episode of Columbo, which was directed by her father. Because, again, father showbiz family. Her father was a director of a lot of TV shows. Her first sizable role came in the form of a newspaper columnist in the series Mary, starring Mary Tyler Moore, which led to her iconic role as, of course, Peggy Bundy in Married with Children, which ran for 11 years. Uh, She brought her own – I love this fact – she brought her own red bouffant wig to the audition and ended up getting the wig onto the show because she did such a great job of that. And that is such, again, talk about an iconic role. That is such the iconic look is that wig. So Graining then cast her as Legla in Futurama. And uh, she's actually the only cast member to voice just one role on the show. Uh, I just, I'm a big fan of hers, of course. I, I just seeing her go from Peggy to Leela to, I don't know her character's name, but uh, Sons of, the character she plays on Sons of Anarchy, so cool. Like, just what a, what a great range. What a great, wonderful career she's had. Do, and, and being known for not just one role, but being known for these three very strong roles is great. Let's talk about John DiMaggio, voice of Bender, among others. So John DiMaggio had been, like, kind of just working his way through the the voice acting minds I'd say for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, he has a very fascinating life story. There's a video called like uh, animated people uh, where he like, it's him talking about his life story. He grew up like as the only white kid in an all black school in New Jersey. His parents got like a divorce and they moved him to then an all white school in New Jersey. But his mom uh, remarried to a black man. So all of a sudden he was the weird guy with a black dad in a white school. So he'd never fit in. Um, he resented everything. He just like he describes just uh, watching the same three Mel Brooks movies over and over again uh, to keep himself company as a teenager. And it all turned around when he discovered the drama club. And he was absolutely the weird, like kind of bad kid that just kind of looked at all the girls in the chorus and was like, so they're all I can just hang out with these hot girls. <laughs> like, OK, yeah, I'll be a drama kid. And um, from there, he wanted to be an actor. Uh, he did video game work, you know, famously. Uh, he was uh, what's 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 the character's name? Uh, Wada Wado Wadam. Oh, in uh, Final, Final Fantasy X, I think it's uh, I think it's Wada, right? Yeah. Um, I'll have to look it up. Uh, ah, ha, ha, ha. No, that's Titus. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Waka, he was Waka. Waka. Uh, <laughs> just fucking hates the Albed. No, no, no problems, brother. But if you and Albed, we gotta throw you in the river. Um. And, you know, he started with minor roles, a lot of Cartoon Network stuff. Johnny uh, Bravo, the Powerpuff Girls. Of course, also, we've talked about Spawn in the past. He was the voice of Spawn, or was he just on Spawn? He was just on Spawn. He's also most known for his role as Jake the Dog in Adventure Time, so I know we've talked about him in the past. He became the king of 2000s, like, loot crate culture yeah. because he was both Bender and... And Jake the dog. It kind and, of yeah. that was his grand awakening. I and feel like. Marcus Phoenix in Gears of War, which is like so different from those other two things. He was also uh, Gonza in Princess Mononoke, which was like a very early role for him before. Like when you think of like when you watch it now, you're like, oh shit, they got John DiMaggio. Like he was just some schmuck when he was in that uh, in Princess Mononoke. A ton of anime uh, stuff, and. Uh, also, one of the best Jokers of all time. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, it's in um, uh, which uh, Red Hood, in the Red Hood animated adaptation. He is 
literally he does he doesn't do a full mark hamill he doesn't do a jack nicholson he has his own weird like almost bruiser take on the joker and it's fucking terrifying you know what mary 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 hi micro derail play a clip of the can i get some water uh from uh batman under the red hood you think you can handle that (coughs) may i have some water I'm going to need something to wear in a very big truck. Sure. Anything else? I'll need some guys. Not these guys, because, well, they're kind of dead. <laughs> That's John DiMaggio. He's fucking terrifying. So initially, DiMaggio auditioned for the role of Professor Farnsworth using the Bender voice. He used a different voice for Bender, a role that was difficult to cast as they hadn't yet decided what he should sound like. Graining said, it's really hard to cast a robot voice. Everybody came in and talked robotically or did an imitation of C-3PO or they did Hal. David Cohen tried out for the part because some people think his voice sounds somewhat robotic and he was too good. He's just Jewish. That it was anti-Semitic. <laughs> so we couldn't use him. And John came in and did it as a kind of aggressive barfly. And that's it. That really dictated where we were with the character. He describes it as like a town drunk meets Slim Pickens meets a Midwest guy who can't stop talking about sausages. Of course, Slim Pickens, who was the guy that rides the bomb on Dr. Strangelove, and it was also in Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles, a movie he watched a trillion times as a teenager. Wait, and did you mention Charlie the Sausage Lover? Uh, yeah. Oh, now? Did, okay, yes. cool. I was like looking at I was like, I'm pretty sure I heard you say that. I want to know what that sounded like. You can find him. You, talk, can find yeah, him? you can find him doing Charlie the Sausage Lover. Oh, hilarious. Oh, you got a great sausage. You got a, you got a <laughs> kibasa, you got a bowl of spicy Italian, <laughs> sweet Italian. Oh, nothing like more than a sausage. Um, but hear me out. It's This has actually solved a great mystery for me because in the early episodes of Futurama, Bender has a kind of tired quality yeah. about him yeah. that you never, I never understood why he had made that choice. And it's because that voice was his take on Farnsworth. Uh-huh. And they literally said, do the Farnsworth for Bender. Yeah. And then, obviously, as the animated series, like, very quickly, they kind of settled into this hard-living guy. Gave him a little, yeah, made him a little younger, mm-hmm. had more energy. But when you bite my shiny metal, like, it's a <laughs> little bit off in that yeah. first episode. And it's because that's John DiMaggio's Farnsworth voice. Granning said, I'm very proud of Bender because you believe he's real. I don't know why a robot would behave that way or why they would allow it, <laughs> but he's definitely autonomous or almost autonomous. One of the things that makes me laugh the most is that Bender cannot be accused of being a bad role model because he's a robot. He gets to smoke cigars and say outrageous things. Uh, remember in that one uh, What If episode where he's like, he smokes the cigars, eats the nachos, drinks a beer, and then makes out with a woman all in like <laughs> three seconds? <laughs> Um, oh, also one of my, it's one of my favorite jokes from that same, where he turns into a flesh and blood human and he's like, oh wait, he's like, he's like, woo, it's like, oh wait, he's still alive. No, that's just fat escaping from his fat, that's just air escaping from his fat rolls and they just push me, he's just like, woo, woo. Uh, you also have Phil Lamar as Hermes Conrad. He started out doing improv with the Groundlings, the second city and improv Olympic. You may recognize him as one of the original nine cast members of Mad TV. 
Then there's Lauren Tom, who does Amy Wong. She started out on Broadway in a chorus line and went on to have a prolific career in film and television. She got into voice acting with Superman, the animated series. And that pretty much is our... No, you got to talk about Maurice LaMarche. Sure. Uh, He's like a utility guy. He did like half the impressions on the original Critic show. Which is where, like, uh, you remember, like, uh, the... uh, Rosebud brand frozen peas. Like, uh-huh. that's Maurice LaMarche. Uh-huh. Uh, he's played a bunch of uh, characters. He plays Kiff. That's his, like, most no- notable role. He also plays Calculon, Hedonism Bot, um, <laughs> Morbo. He does a lot of big utility players. He's such an unsung hero in the world of uh, voice acting. I love Maurice LaMarche. Also, cook a crossover with, like, half the episodes we've ever done. The voice of Nibbler, done by Frank fucking Welker. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course it's Frank Welker. Of course. Who else wouldn't it be? What else is Frank Welker uh, on? He's, he's Fred from Scooby-Doo. He's yep. every single dog or animal yes. in the history of animation. That's got to be such a bizarre uh, Megatron, typecast um, situation to be in. To he's be everything. He's the guy a, that makes the noises as the animals. He's the new voice of Garfield after uh, Lorenzo Music died. <laughs> Uh, he was one of the Ghostbusters. I think he was Ray in Ghostbusters. How many episodes do you think we've mentioned him in? I'm seriously <laughs> like we mentioned Frank Welker at least half of our episodes. More than Billy West? Yeah, absolutely more than Billy West. <laughs> it's insane. That's amazing. So he was the cat on Inspector Gadget. <laughs> How about that for a fucker? So let's talk about this opening sequence. Unless you want, you have any more voice actors for us? Uh, he was two of the Beagle Boys in Ducktales. <laughs> Uh, several, oh my god, we talked about the DuckTales episode. Uh, he was a hefty Smurf. Uh, he was a bunch of villains. Hefty Smurf. I don't remember Hefty Smurf. Is that Shame Smurf at this point? Uh, he was the dragon in Shrek. <laughs> he's wow. everything. Dude has had more. He has touched more people through his work <laughs> than any other living human. And it's dumb. It's dumb <laughs> that it's he's all just, the guy. Yeah, just noise, just animal noises. So the opening sequence took four or five weeks to fully animate, and it consists of over 80 levels of 3D animation composited together. It takes approximately an hour to render a single frame, and each second consists of around 30 frames. That's absurd. Before the spaceship crashes into a giant TV screen, it displays a different classic cartoon each week from stuff like Looney Tunes to Max Fleischer cartoons. They even have an old uh, Tracy Ullman Simpsons short, if you remember our the beginning of the Simpsons episode. Uh, they they feature different things there. That's like their couch gag moment yeah. in the Futurama opening. Al- along with uh, the little tagline before uh, when the logo appears, along with a lot of the ads in the background while the ships are floating by. Right. Um, one of the things that really, now that I think about it, of course this show became more popular after it was canceled the first time. Uh, Which we'll get into next week. We'll get into next week. Greinig and Cohen both talked about how when they first saw that opening sequence, they were terrified that it was too busy. It was too fast. There were too much things going on on screen. And at the time, in its original debut, it's probably true on like a small standard resolution uh, CRT television. I, I even remember being a kid being like, I couldn't make out the jokes. I was like, it was all flying by too fast. But then on cable, on ba- you know, on Adult Swim, in the HD era, it was perfect. It was glorious. You know, you finally bought a widescreen TV and you could see all these details. Mm. It's kind of, you know, that level of attention and that level of just blood, sweat, and piss went unappreciated in its time. But then when people were ready for it, 
And next week, we'll get into the people that were ready for it. We'll get into the episodes we love from the show. We'll get into the weird people that literally can't fall asleep unless an episode is playing in the background. (laughs) But for now, all we'll say is that Futurama debuted on the Fox Sunday night lineup at 8.30 p.m. between The Simpsons and The X-Files on March 28th, 1999. Until then, we'll have to say goodbye to the world of tomorrow. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to part one of our Futurama episode. Just wanted to throw it out there. If you want to support us further, check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. You get uh, bonus episodes every single week for just $5 a month. We have some other offerings on there as well. That's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Also, we are excited to announce that we are going Spotify exclusive this year. And I just want to get a few things across on that. Episodes are currently available on Spotify, which is free. And you can download episodes for offline listening with a free account. So check it out, Wizard and the Bruiser, listen free on Spotify. You can also check me out, twitch.tv forward slash HoldenatorsHo. I do live streaming all the time. Please join us. Um, what are we doing right now? The marriage test with Alexi on Tuesday nights where we, uh, she, we're trying to get her through Dark Souls. Uh, we had a bit of a snafu at Sin's Fortress because she has a horrible fear of snakes. Oh, she no. Literally, like, That's the whole Fortress's deal. She had a emotional breakdown during <laughs> during that. I had to just be like, I'll just play you through this part because <laughs> like, that's how bad the fear was. But what a trooper she is for pushing past and trying to do it herself. She's Not even really, Big Hat Logan could assuage her fears. I know, right? <laughs> She's literally like putting herself through the ringer on this, and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. So that's some of the content you can get from that. Jake! Follow me on Twitter, at BestJakeYoung, for all my bits and borps and blips and bobbles, uh, and once in a while, just, uh, just a really just sad take about uh, my life. Hell yeah. Uh, and always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.